Excerpts from John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate of Pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which was, sorry, which has five rich colonies. And these lay multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another step down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Skip down to verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his Thank you, Laura. Wonderful job. Uh, welcome to RUF. Really glad you're here. Hope you heard about the time change for showing up at 8.30. We're glad you're here. Um, man, we just, we always hope that no matter uh, how tired you are, uh, what your week has looked like, uh, whether you're convinced of Christianity or not, that you find this to be a place where you can come, examine the truth claims of Scripture, uh, and see who Jesus is and decide for yourself. Let me, uh, let me pray. Lord, um, I know last week uh, and this week were exhausting uh, for many. I know a lot of people uh, have felt their life uh, is disrupted, uh, disrupted by their disappointment and how things uh, shook out in rush, maybe in disappointment by showing up in a, in a, in a place and then panicking, uh, thinking this is not what I thought. Uh, maybe disappointment on the other side of rush, seeing things, how things are broken. Um, I don't know, but uh, there are just a lot of burdens that we bring into this place. And you tell us that you have come to bring rest, uh, to lift burdens, to take away shame, to remove guilt, uh, and so we need to know that tonight. Lord, would we uh, be able to respond to the question that Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed uh, with, with a yes, uh, and give us the faith to trust you. Uh, in your son's name I pray, amen. All right, so I have three kids. Clark is my youngest. He's, he's my four-year-old. He's my son, and he is at that age where he's learning to do things proudly by himself, uh, and that is a part of his, uh, I guess, newfound independence. Uh, not too long ago, he got a, uh, a new pair of uh, awesome pajamas, Star Wars pajamas that he thought was awesome, and, and so he really wanted to wear them all day, uh, and the problem was it was actually time to go out to eat, and we were going to a relatively decent place to eat where you can't wear Star Wars pajamas. 
And so Liza, my sweet wife, said, well, Clark, uh, it's time to put on your clothes now. And I don't want to misquote my son. Here's what he said. He said, no, if you don't put my pajamas on me, you're not my mom anymore. I'm in charge of myself. That is my son, Clark. Um, and it's kind of cute as a four-year-old. Um, but that little, that little seed of wanting to be in charge of yourself, Nobody taught Clark that. It's actually deep within all of us. And this whole thing that we're examining through the book of John, that Jesus claims to bring life, real life to people, here's what we're going to see in, in, uh, in this passage. Is that the idea of being in charge of yourself, trying to manage life apart from Jesus, if He is life, it always leads to death. But we just... Be- it's, it's the same thing uh, uh, that, that my son Clark does. We just become a lot more skilled at it. And we're going to see Jesus interact with kind of two groups of people. And both are trying to manage life apart from Jesus. Be in charge. Be independent. And it's leading towards death. And Jesus says, do you really want to be healed? So we're going to look at how this invalid manages life apart from Jesus. Then we're going to look at how the religious leaders, the Pharisees, try to manage life uh, independent of Jesus. And then we're going to look how Jesus brings life. First, how the invalid uh, manages life. This is verse 1 through 9. Okay, look at this paralytic. Jesus, upon entering the city, again, if Jesus shows us what God is like, this is awesome. When Jesus enters the city, he doesn't go where the social elites gather. Jesus heads straight for the place where there's people that are hurting and desperate. That's where he goes. That's what God is like. And so apparently there's this pool, and you get the idea that there's this superstition that has arisen around this pool, uh, where people think the waters get stirred, and if you get in it, they'll either heal you, or maybe they, maybe they really do soothe your skin and make you feel better. But that kind of stuff happens today, right? When people get desperate, they get superstitious about stuff. And so there are all these invalids laying around this pool, blind, sick, paralyzed people. And Jesus approaches... It appears just one man, a man who for 38 years, 38 years, has been an invalid. Probably means, uh, probably means his legs are paralyzed because you, you get the impression that he can at least crawl. But imagine that. 38 years. That is double some of your lifespan so far in this room. And I want you to feel the oddity of Jesus' question. Because Jesus approaches this guy who for 38 years has been laying by a pool, laying, lying, laying, I never know, laying by a pool. If he was a paralytic, he could crawl, but people always had to get him there. He probably had major hygiene and bowel problems if he was always dependent on other people. He smelled. He's just a mess. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? That's odd, at the least. It seems kind of rude on the one hand. I mean, could you imagine walking into like a cancer hospital and looking at people emaciated and balding and hooked up to, uh, hooked up to chemo and, and, and looking and saying, hey, do y'all, do y'all really want to get better? Like, do you really want to be healed? Is this, the, is this what you think is going to work? It seems odd. But what's even more fascinating, I think, is this guy's response. Because Jesus asks him, think about this, a simple yes or no question. Do you want to be healed? And what does the guy say? He doesn't say yes. 
he goes into this explanation of his life. He says, well, uh, no one will ever help me in here. No one will put me in the pool. By the time I crawl over there, somebody's already rushed ahead of me. I can't ever get in. He didn't answer Jesus' no, yes or no question. He gives this, it seems like it's this rehearsed explanation that he's given over and over again to others and maybe even to himself of how, of, of how he's trying to make life work. I keep coming here every day trying to figure this out. And after 38 years, you know he started trying to think this isn't going to work. But he doesn't, know, he doesn't do anything else. This is his ritual of existence. This is how he makes sense of his life and tries to make his life work. And think about it. Jesus, life itself, is standing in front of him and asking him, do you want to be healed? And the man basically says, well, it's not that simple. Let me explain to you uh, uh, what's going on with me and why I can't get to the pool. The man was a paralytic. But the man's deepest problem was that he was managing life, trying to find strategies of surviving independent of Jesus. And Jesus is standing there, ready to heal, ready to enter in. And this is where I would suggest all of us should be exposed to some extent. Because we all, I don't care if you're trying to figure out Christianity or if you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember. We try to find strategies and patterns and explanations for our life that we have built our life on. So that we can just manage life independent of Jesus. And I don't have to let Jesus come into this. Because I don't want to have to trust him with this. And I think the way that you can know the systems that you've created in your life that Jesus can't touch are the ways that you'd avoid us basically simple yes or no questions with explanations. And so, no, it's not going to be, do you want to be healed? That would sound too general. It's It's going to sound something like this. Is your dating relationship healthy? You're going to say, well... It's not that simple. Um, You know, we've been dating for three years and we we know that brings all kinds of physical struggle because we really love each other. And because we've dated this long, I don't know, it kind of be kind of pointless to break up at this point and other people don't know him like I do. And all these kind of strategies, these things that you've told yourself come out to avoid the truth that it might just be bad. But to admit that would mean I have to let Jesus into this and actually begin to trust that He can hold me and He can sustain my life. He can take care of me. It might look like this. Do you you have academic integrity? Yes or no? Well, I don't know what it's like. I'm not doing this. Wow, it's kind of hard. It's fuzzy. I mean, there's old test banks. Everybody uses them. Professor doesn't really say whether you can or not. And this is kind of the only way to make it through pharmacy school, right? Teachers are kind of crazy if they think we're going to do all this by ourselves. And it's just this system, this strategy of making it through life so that I don't have to answer yes or no and never have Jesus confront it. And never have to trust him with my academic life. Well. I'll put myself under the bus. I'm, this conversation comes probably at least once a year from Liza. Some, uh, some of that, hey, Brian, are you a workaholic? Well, 
oh, yes, really important, making a big impact for the kingdom, you know, just all this kind of stuff. But I don't want to say yes. Because that would mean I'd have to trust Jesus with saying no to something. Do you? We're going to step on toes tonight. I'm sorry. Do you treat pledges with integrity and care? Well, no, yes or no? Well, you don't understand the system. I mean, they're just pledges. And I went through it and, you know, it brings people closer together and nobody takes it personally. And all these kind of things that we say. Because I don't want to have to trust Jesus with this. I just want to manage life without it. And it's in those areas that we just have, I mean, you almost have, we, we haven't even thought about it, we have rehearsed explanations of how we figured out how to manage life without Jesus and we explain our rituals and we feel okay about it. That's where, the, that's the places in our life that are killing us because we refuse to acknowledge that we need Jesus in that. And so what really is paralyzing this man and you and me it's not his legs. It's his refusal to trust Jesus. And so first, we see this paralytic has these hopeless rituals uh, that he uses to try to find and manage life independent of Jesus. It's the only way we know how to function. Anything else seems too scary. But then you have these Jewish leaders, probably the Pharisees is what they're called. Um, how do they manage life without Jesus? Verse 9 through 12. This, is, this also is odd and kind of funny. Jesus, then without this man asking, this is amazing too, this man shows no sign of faith, Jesus just says, take up your bed and walk. And the guy, for the first time in 38 years, his legs strengthen, he gets up and he carries his bed, probably with a huge uh, smile on his face, maybe he's running, John tells you it was the Sabbath, which is key, but imagine this, just imagine the story, everyone else is either lying around, not carrying anything, to come back to you, except for one man, is probably running with his mat, full of joy, probably sticking out like a sore thumb. And the Jewish leaders say, hey, 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 it's the Sabbath. You can't carry that. And the former paralytic, who just got healed from 38 years of paralysis, says... Uh, the man who healed me told me to take up my mat and walk. What's the next question anybody should ever ask if a guy says, the man who healed me just told me to pick this up and, and uh, this mat and walk? The question should be, who healed you? But they ask, who told you to pick up your bed and walk? That's crazy. Like, that's nuts. It, it would be like... I try to think of a scenario. It'd almost be like you're studying at the library one night, okay? And it's supposed to be quiet in the library. Maybe it's even exam time, so there's there, you know, formalized quiet hours. And you hear some screaming in a room. And you're just mad, right? I've got an accounting test. I can't believe people are screaming. So you walk up there to go in there to see what's going on. And people are crying and jumping and hugging. And you say, hey, why are y'all being loud? He says, oh, you don't understand. My sister who has been lost for two years. We just found her, and she's coming home. And you said, yeah, but you're supposed to be quiet. Like, that's what this sounds like. 
Like, how could these Jewish religious Bible-believing leaders respond like that? How can they not even rejoice over a man who can now walk for the first time and he's fully restored, and they're just caught up in the fact that he broke a rule? What's going on? This is where the religious leaders are just like the uh, envelope. They have created a system that they can manage life apart from Jesus and feel okay about themselves. And the context is important. It's the Sabbath. And God had commanded, and this is a good command, that on, on the seventh day, all should rest. You should do all your labors on the sixth day. You should rest on the seventh. Great command. Because God is at work. But what these Jewish leaders did is they created an extra 39 to 100 rules to make sure that you never came close to breaking the rule. And so they slowly began to find their identity and how well they felt like they were keeping these rules that they made up. Their identity became how good of people they were. And it became a very subtle way to manage life without Jesus. Because they could reduce God's law, here you go, to a hundred little things that they could do or not do, and it made themselves feel good about themselves. Because I'm doing it. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And they created this ritualistic rule-keeping that made themselves feel okay rather than Jesus. They knew they were okay because they did things right. And they needed to be right. And so they missed Jesus. And maybe that sounds extreme until we start looking at our own hearts. I know an RUF pastor back in the day, a different school, not here, but it's not a terribly uncommon occurrence. He just talked about it. He said there was a girl who um, her freshman and sophomore year, right, she would kind of, she would have everything that everybody else wanted. She was smart. Uh, she was very attractive. She was lots of fun. And her first two years of college, she went wild. Lived however she wanted to live. Boys, parties, reckless. And then her junior year, for whatever reason, she started coming to RUF, and she was converted. Like, she heard the good news of Jesus. She realized that Jesus' grace is real and is better And not too long after getting involved with RUF and being converted, you know what happened? She started getting asked out by some great guys in RUF. Like two or three of them. And so naturally, all the other RUF girls were so excited for her. Right? (laughs) You know the deal. They were ticked. They were angry. How is she getting asked out? I've been in RUF my whole college time. I've been studying. I've been the good girl the whole time. And they never asked me out. I did it right. And because I did it right, I couldn't even rejoice over good things happening to other people and the work of God in somebody's life. But that's what happens. When the focus of our life is that I do it right, I'm the good one, that sense of self-righteousness That entitlement that comes, it ends up always making you miss the beauty and graciousness of Jesus. Because John is going to show us this over and over again because you you only meet Jesus 
as a broken, needy sinner. That's it. That's the only way that you meet Jesus. Because you can only know him as a gracious and merciful God. And as long as you avoid being a broken sinner in need of Jesus, you'll always miss Jesus. Because that's who he is. But this is how legalism works. And we have it all in our hearts. It's poisonous because we try to create these systems, these rules. And as long as I can keep these things, I'm good. And I'm better than other people. And if you get your sense of self, your sense of okayness from the fact that you obey and you do things right, you're going to miss Jesus. Because he said, I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. Flannery O'Connor, the great southern writer, she said this, the, the best way to miss Jesus, the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Think about that. Because you'll think you'll never need him. And the easiest way to avoid sin is to make the law keepable. To create these little systems of, well, I guess as long as I do these things and don't do these things, I'm fine. And have you ever noticed how it's just always a moving target? Like in high school, it's just, well, I guess we just won't won't smoke, won't drink, and won't date girls that do. That's it. And then you get to college and the target moves a little bit and becomes these other things. And then these and then when you're then when you're married, it'll be these other. It's always these new systems that you create so that I don't have to be a desperate sinner. And Jesus is saying, you'll miss it. You'll miss out on life itself. Creating these systems where you don't need his grace. And you can always see the legalistic areas in your life. By the places that you can't rejoice in good things in others. Like, there have been times in my life, I'm not proud of this, but there have been times in my life that, uh, that students were converted in other ministries, great things happening, and I couldn't rejoice because it wasn't RUF. We do it right, and they don't. Man, that's so sad. I'm missing the beauty of Jesus and what he's doing because I've just got to be right. White evangelicals in the South miss the beauty of the civil rights movement. You know why? Because Martin Luther King went to a liberal seminary. And we just couldn't agree with everything that he said. And they missed it. They missed the beauty of the gospel and what it was doing. Because we just had to be right. This is what Jesus is saying. Do you really want to be healed tonight? Because that means starting to look at your own bitterness and envy and self-righteousness. Because that always comes from creating the system of obedience where it feels like you're doing it and other people aren't. And it's hard to give that up. It is. Bitterness bitterness tastes so sweet. It feels so good to feel better than other people. It feels so good to pass along information about others um, so that you feel good. But what you'll find is deep down, obedience just becomes ritualistic. Prayer, going to church, obedience, they're not things done out of joy and love of Jesus. It's just behaviors that help you function and feel good about yourself. You don't even know why you're doing them. Do you want to be healed? That's what Jesus is asking so how does he restore it? You see the way uh, the invalid vanishes his life apart from Jesus. 
Then you see the way the religious people do it. It looks different. It's the same thing. Where's the hope? Verse 13 through 18. Both people trying to manage life independent of Jesus, they find, they're trying to find healing and restoration without Jesus. And so in verse 14, what happens? Jesus comes and finds the man. It's interesting. The man doesn't even know who heals him. Jesus comes and finds him, and he says a very strange thing. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. What is Jesus saying? What in the world could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? It's what Jesus says in other places. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. See, Jesus has healed this man's body, but he's telling him, your heart needs to be healed. There's something more broken in you. Jesus is saying, look, sin is your ultimate problem. And sin at its core wants to be in charge of its own life. And sin wants to be independent of Jesus. And if Jesus is life itself, then think about it. Sin is always death. Because it's turning away from life itself with Jesus and choosing death, choosing destruction, separation from God, which is hell. And Jesus is saying this, the first step to restoring your life is to actually see the reality of sin's destruction. This isn't always fun to talk about. But this is what he's saying, that the little ways that we manage life independent of Jesus, we just don't think they're a big deal. I don't. And Jesus says... You don't get it. It'll destroy you. And we don't see sin that way. It's just these little things I need to work on. And Jesus says, do you really want to be healed? Because if so, you need to see that sin leads to destruction. And you need to sever it. And, but what we do is we say, yeah, we think our, yes, my addiction needs to stop. Yes. But to give that up? To like invite other people into that? Come on. It's not that big of a deal. That's too scary. To live without those substances, I won't be able to manage life. And what we're saying is, I don't think Jesus can really hold me. I don't think I can trust him. And Jesus is saying, look at sin like I see it. It wants to destroy you. We think gossip and talking about other people should probably stop. But giving that up, come on. Like actually going to a person and confessing to them my prideful heart and the way that I talk about them, that's crazy. Jesus says, okay, do you really want to be healed? Do you really understand how sin wants to destroy you? My bitterness towards other people, yes, it's a problem. Yes, my self-righteousness. Yes, my arrogance. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Because what if that would mean our sin becoming public to other people? And me daring to start seeing who I am and admitting it to Jesus and others. And we say, nope, not that. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? So the first step is actually seeing the seriousness of sin, that sin does lead to death. And when we look to Jesus and realize that these little strategies we use to try to manage uh, life apart from, from Jesus, it's like trying to manage cancer. You can't do it. And sin is so destructive that Jesus came to die to heal us from it. Which leads to the second step, the last thing. 
The man turns Jesus in. The man who healed, uh, the guy who healed Jesus, he turns him into the religious leaders, knowing that they that they aren't going to like Jesus. And for the first time in John, you see, as the result of this, they're ready to kill Jesus. This is the moment that every commentator says right here, John five is when Jesus signed his death warrant. This is when you know he's going to die. Because the key is to not just see that, oh, I've just got to be more serious about sin. That doesn't work. You can redouble your efforts to defeat sin with all the willpower you want, and it won't work. You have to see something about Jesus. And it involves his death. You see, what they want to kill him for is that he broke the Sabbath and he claimed to be God. How did he claim to be God? Well, basically, what, here's the whole Sabbath principle. If you're human, you need to stop working on a day and recognize that God is the one who always works. God is the one who upholds you. Only God works on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, my father is working and so am I. Hear what he just said? Well, of course I'm working. I'm God. And so they decide to kill him. See, this is what you have to see about Jesus. Jesus is Sabbath rest. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to work so hard. He's going to exhaust himself carrying the cross. He's going to sweat drops of blood. He's going to become dehydrated. And then he will bear your sin on a cross and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is working his life to the end to bear our sin and the consequences of of us living apart from him. He will, and then he will cry out this. It is finished. Jesus on the cross cries out, it is finished. What is finished? All the work, all the work required to make you right with God. You accepted by God. You delighted in by God. All of it finished. So that you can just collapse into Jesus. Like a paralytic, needy, and he will hold you. I know somebody who, uh, and I'll end here, I know somebody who uh, had to get knee replacement surgery one time. And if you know anything about knee, knee replacement surgery, they, at least this guy, they literally inserted um, metal uh, into his, basically they replaced his knee with, with a metal ball. Incredibly painful, it's hard. But the most painful part, he said, was physical therapy. Because basically everything in your leg hurts. Everything in your leg feels like you can't stand up on it. It won't hold. And the physical therapist is always saying, get up. Stand up on it. It doesn't feel like it's going to hold, but there's something strong inside of you that's going to hold you. You've got to trust it. Bear the pain and stand on it. What Jesus is saying when he cries out, it is finished. He is saying... What I have done is strong enough. It'll hold you. And I'll send the spirit that'll be inside of you that'll also hold you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. It's scary giving up those ways that we manage life apart from Jesus. But he will hold you. He will hold you. He'll do whatever it takes to make you holy. He will cover your sin. He will forgive you. He will give you his righteousness. He will hold you. He's that good. He's that powerful. You just have to rest in Him. Look away from yourself to Jesus. He has finished the work of salvation. You can be a helpless beggar. He'll hold you.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. Thank you for a man. Uh, I don't know. I love this. There's a man who displayed no faith. A man who, after you healed him, doesn't even seem to appreciate what you did. And actually ends up betraying you and turning you back to uh, people that want to kill him. And that's the kind of God that you are. You come after people who don't appreciate you, who betray you, who don't even realize the things that you've done for them. And you keep coming after us. And you keep pursuing us. And you keep showing us grace. Help us to rest in that. In your son's name I pray. Amen.